cast you out! Unclean spirit! Show it up your ass! In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ! It is he who commands you! He who flung you! Heights of heaven to the depths of hell! Fuck him! Be gone! Fuck him, Garrus! From Fuck this him. creature of God! Be gone! In the name of the Father! And of the Son! And the Holy Spirit! By this sign of the Holy Cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Damien! Amen. God, defender of the human race! Oh, look down in pity! You killed your mother! Your servant! You left her alone! Shut up! I command you, by the judge of the living and the dead, to depart from the servant of God. It's the power. Holy water. It's the power of Christ that compels you. The power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels you! 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 He brought you low by his bloodstained cross. Do not despise my command because you know me to be a sinner. God himself who commands you. Oh, you want to play psycho killer? Can I be the helpless victim? Okay, let's see. No, please don't kill me, Mr. Ghostface. I want to be in the sequel. I like to dissect girls. Did you know I'm utterly insane? Look at me, Damien! It's all for you! I am the eater of wolves and of children! You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. What an excellent day for an exorcism. You'd like that? But wouldn't that drive you out of Reagan? It would bring us together. You and Reagan? You and us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another head-spinning edition of the greatest, greatest October in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 195, The Exorcist. Head-spinning... Vomit-inducing, maybe? Vomit in the face. That's right. 
<laughs> crucifix in the vagina. This is like <laughs> such a, a cool movie. It's weird because I feel like there's two movies from my childhood that I was scared of without seeing. One being Poltergeist and the other being The Exorcist. And I think neither movie was ever nearly as scary as what they were in my imagination. Oh, yeah. That's how it was for so many things. That's for right. Me. Yeah. But The Exorcist, in my opinion, is sort of like us doing The Godfather or yeah. Goodfellas or uh, movies we have done like Jaws or something. This is such oh, like a big Yeah. Well, I was saying thing. to Lindsay had never seen it. And we watched it. And I was kind of explaining it to her beforehand how it's like, I was like, I saw this at a fairly young age and wasn't as scared by it as I thought I was going to be. Like, I didn't think it was that scary, but I, I thought it was a really cool movie. And I, it, it's almost like The Shining in that sense. Like, it's just like a really cool, big movie. I didn't see The Exorcist until I was in college. I saw it in middle school, which at that point I was still uh, very... <laughs> yeah, I was expecting myself to be much more scared by it than I was. In a weird way, I do think that some of the material in the film would probably go over a kid's head as yeah. to why it's so fucked up For compared sure. to like an older person, especially in 73 where people weren't used to seeing this stuff at all. And then you've had like maybe 30, 40 years and then right. never seeing anything like this movie. And then this happens and you're like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Well, and don't get me wrong as a middle schooler, there was still stuff that definitely freaked me out and I found it unsettling. But if there was just no way it could ever be as scary as like what it was in my head. Oh, you were like, oh, this is how you masturbate. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just like, what is she doing? She's just stabbing herself. <laughs> yeah. And we're not experts on this movie and we're probably going to miss we point a out lot often. of the details. Yeah, when we do like a bigger movie that comes with a certain set of expectations i always have to yeah, qualify right. our podcast and be like we're gonna probably omit a lot of things yeah but there's a whole weird history with this movie so many crazy things happened in the pre-production and then yeah. during production and then the post-production there's so many versions of this movie we're gonna touch on both although we're gonna mostly focus on the original theatrical cut and i'm sure we'll at least mention the other movies i guess in the series but i think the whole history of The Exorcist or aura of The Exorcist. I do remember when The Exorcist, the beginning, came out in theaters, and I think that was kind of a time for them to drum up all this old material again and start airing all those specials, because that's when I really started seeing all of the, you know, the curse of The Exorcist type stuff. Yeah, are you talking about the prequel movie or the... Yeah. Okay. The, the, when the prequel movie came out, around yeah. that time period, on TV again, they were like, all right, let's pull these out again, all these old specials that we did for... The Curse of the Exorcist and things like that. So we're going to try our best with it. We are smack dab in the middle of a very extended edition of The Greatest October all the way up to episode 200, which we hope to release on October 31st. The extended edition, of course, featuring extended episodes. Yes. You can follow our show on Twitter at GreatestPod, and you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts and Podbean, and we are having fun. This is our time of the year, yeah. horror movies, and this is a big one. It's one of the most famous, well-known, iconic, best, scariest horror movies ever. Yeah. And it still holds a special place in horror fans' hearts. Rewatching it now, I, I watched both versions 
or at least the two that are released on Blu-ray, you can still see why because <laughs> it's still kind of crazy that this was just a mainstream movie that oh, was yeah. released. And I don't think that you could really have an R-rated movie today that has some of the stuff that's in this movie. I, I know we get into it like all the time, you know, like they wouldn't make a movie like this now, but this is absolutely exhibit a you know well they like, wouldn't have made get... this movie ever right <laughs> I know yeah. this, it's just a weird thing and it was a controversy at the time that people suspected that warner brothers put pressure on the ratings board to get an r and we'll get to that Good later for them but when you think about midnight cowboy which won best picture in 1969 and how it was rated x oh yeah I know. and if you watch midnight cowboy now it's and you tame. compare it to the yeah. exorcist which came out four years later i know it was rated r <laughs> yeah i know They're like we're gonna feature a movie with a young girl just doing horrific and saying horrific things the exorcist which came out in 1973 was directed by william friedkin it was produced and written by william peter blatty and it was based on the novel, which came out in 71, which was also by Blatty. William Friedkin makes kind of crazy movies, I would say we have an appreciation for. The film had a budget of $12 million, which was a lot for this type of movie, and people were really concerned with it going over budget. Uh, but then the box office at the time was $441.3 million, making yeah. it the highest grossing R-rated horror movie ever. And if you adjust it for inflation, it would still be, and it would still it would be like close to two billion dollars. And it wasn't passed even for unadjusted box office until 2017 with the release of it. Yeah, this is one that I kind of wish I could go back and, and be around during this time when this was out, just to experience like what the buzz was around the movie. Well, yeah, it was one of those things where. They didn't really know what to do with it. They didn't know what they had on their hands. So it was in a pretty limited release right after Christmas <laughs> in 73. And then they immediately had to roll it out wide as possible because the lines for this movie were insane. That's awesome. People trying to get in. And it actually kicked off a box office model that would be then replicated with Jaws and then changed the way movies were released okay. forever. Yeah. Jaws pretty much followed the blueprint after that initial release, forgetting the the limited release part, but then just expanding so rapidly, which right. was not very common for many movies. It was like a road show before just going city to city. Kind of, yeah. A lot more movies had very slow rollouts across the yeah. country. But The Exorcist is right up there in a long line of the most iconic horror movies. If you want to start with some of the universal movies like Frankenstein or Dracula or whatever, and then Psycho, Night of the Living Dead, Halloween, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Shining, Jaws, Alien, Get Out, whatever. This is right there. This is sort of the godfather of horror movies oh, in yeah. so many ways. And everything about the movie, including the making of it and then the the film itself, has like this cursed vibe. Yeah. It was difficult to cast despite being a bestseller and a big project at a big studio a lot of people were not into this material they I, didn't want I'm to be sure. associated yeah. with it it's not something that you're leaping to do even as like an actor who's might be like desperate for roles you probably read the script and you're like yeah i don't know during the production most of the set burned down at one point there were long-term injuries sustained by linda blair and ellen burston there were a few deaths of people affiliated with the film and people in the film extreme filmmaking but 
it all paid off and going over budget paid off when it was released into 24 theaters that winter of 73 there were long lines of people standing out in the snow waiting to get into this oh yeah like i said i I think i would have been caught up in the fever in in 73 and it was like the first time that they were able to like parlay the hype and some of the crazy incidents at some of the screenings into the marketing of the film which we talked a little bit about with the blair witch project and then referenced paranormal activity and stuff and how they were like look at how people are reacting to this in the theater this is one of those things and they've tried to replicate it with like raw a couple years ago where they're like oh we have an ambulance and the people are like throwing up and passing out (laughs) that was by the way like your number two movie of the year or something (laughs) number one (laughs) number one (laughs) there was rumors i don't know how true all this stuff is like a woman had a miscarriage and people collapsed and fainted and threw up and all kinds of crazy shit and of course that sounds bad on the surface but it's like these like exaggerations heroin to marketing execs that are like people are going to be dying to get into this now those stories always turn into like so much more it's like some guy threw up but he like had the flu (laughs) like is like the the real story yeah and of course there's always a certain amount of embellishment but the two scenes that stood out i think for people the most one is sort of surprising because it has really not anything to do with horror it's the cerebral angiography or the arter- arteriograph yeah. where the blood comes out of Reagan's neck. It is, like, shockingly real. It, it seems so real. And that caused people to pass out. Yeah. <laughs> On this most recent viewing for me, and I don't really get upset by these things usually, but I was like, you know, you kind of got to turn away. And then, of course, the scene where Reagan masturbates with a crucifix. Yeah, not something you expect to see on the big screen. <laughs> a scene that is just unfathomable that this was in an R-rated movie in and 1973. Then, you know, what happens with her mom, like, right after, is just, like, even more... <laughs> well, that whole sequence is where things escalate oh, to yeah. a point where I don't think anybody was expecting it before they right. saw this movie. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> even if you read the book, and we'll talk about how that scene was actually worse in the book, even if you had read the novel... yeah. There's just no way you thought that they would take it that far. In the I would not film. imagine. There was just no precedent. Yeah. There was just nothing like that in a movie. Yeah, and you would think that you're going to run into some issues getting an R rating for this, I think, if you're crossing certain lines. Even the teaser trailer for this film was banned in a lot of places. Oh, really? It was deemed too scary. Oh, wow. Because it was just. The demon face, like, flashing yeah, yeah. on a black screen. That was, like, the teaser trailer. And people were like, no, yeah. you can't play this before other movies. <laughs> <laughs> That's, like, whenever they had Man. that thing where, like, the Hereditary trailer was, like, accidentally played in front of, like, Peter Rabbit and stuff. Yeah. And, like, little kids were, like, <laughs> losing their minds. Wow. Imagine though, like you're you are in a theater and see that teaser trailer. It's like I would have been like, oh man, that's what I mean. I I just so would have been like so in on this movie, so in on just the buzz around it. So as we've mentioned and alluded to, the film was rated R, which is a surprise because it's fucked up. It's hard to really like explain, I guess, what the mindset was. But on one hand, getting an X rating at this time period was not the same thing as getting an NC-17 now. Because like I said, Midnight Cowboy was rated X and won Best Picture. It wasn't like this kiss of death necessarily. And yet it still would impact box office in some way. That's another thing, by the way, 
not dissimilar from how I felt about scary movies that I hadn't seen. When I was a kid, the idea of an X rating and what that meant. Like, yeah. I was picturing I mean, basically what people would consider like a snuff film. Like, that's what I thought like an X rating I thought it movie was like was. hardcore porn. Right. Yeah. Porn, <laughs> horrible things that you couldn't show anywhere. And then, then you see like an NC 17 movie today. You're like, uh, this is feels barely different than a rated R movie. And so there were film critics and and people in the film community that were very critical of this decision to give an R rating. And you would think, well, why would they be against it? Why would they be in favor of censorship? And the answer is they weren't in favor of censorship because, like I said, at the time, an X rating was perceived a little differently. What they were afraid of was if the film industry wasn't going to govern itself with these ratings and take the ratings seriously. They were afraid that towns Uh, were just going to decide to do their own ratings and ban films. And some cities tried to ban the exorcist, including Boston and other big cities. There were attempts to ban it. (laughs) Yeah. There were large parts of England where it was banned and they would organize bus trips uh, to go see it and stuff. These are very Catholic areas. I would expect them to be like, Oh yeah, we're being, represented here (laughs) yeah well the reception to the exorcist in the religious community seems like it's all over the map from it being a glorification of satan and being horrible and people shouldn't see it to it being a realistic depiction of a demonic possession and it celebrates like the catholic faith i guess i don't know okay so like the reception it was all over the map I, I don't know. I guess it's like the difference between like if it's nudity for the plot or gratuitous nudity. It's like, <laughs> well, this is like it's all for masturbating with the crucifix yeah. for the greater good of the plot. <laughs> like it's not gratuitous. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> it was the first horror film nominated for Best Picture. It got 10 nominations overall. It won for Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Sound Mixing. Linda Blair was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. And as I was explaining to you before we started recording, her nomination came at a time when people still thought she was doing the demonic voice. Yeah, which does seem nuts in retrospect that people thought that. but Because it seems pretty much impossible that a 12-year-old girl would be able to do that voice. I'd say so, yeah. But the person who did do the voice was not credited at the time, and they sort of leaned into that idea for a while that it was her, I think, to sell the movie. Mm-hmm. And then in between the time where she was nominated and then the actual ceremony, it came out that she didn't do the voice. And it really took any chance of her winning away. It was sort of like a minor controversy. But I thought it was funny when you compare it to Rami Malek winning for playing Freddie Mercury, but not actually singing the songs. Right, right. (laughs) One of the big things when you watch The Exorcist and it gets under your skin, and you have that bad feeling, it's because they use subliminal quote-unquote images, but not really. Subliminal images are images that you don't actually see, and you see the cuts in this. It's kind of like Fight Club, the cigarette burn idea, where there's a flash of the demon face, and there's other things like inserted throughout it as well. But even more, I would say, devious than that is the sound mixing and the incorporation of different sounds yeah. And then the recurrence of those sounds. And they're not sounds that necessarily have anything to do with what's happening in the movie. It's just sounds that have been like found to be the ones that upset human beings the most. Yeah. Like the buzzing of bees. Right. Thrown in there. And then the, early in the well, film. Where there's like the loud noise when she's trying to listen to the priest's talk. 
Yeah. There, well, there's like the sounds of animals fighting yeah, right. early in the movie. Yeah. Those dogs. Yeah. And the first thing you hear is like Islamic chanting, which yes. puts a lot of like Western white people off. Even in the <laughs> 70s, like pre 9-11, it was always like a thing that made people uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, maybe it's like dipping its toe into Islamophobia and like racism, but it's sort of like exploiting people's inner fears and the things that rattle their cage yeah well i also feel like kind of the overall like tempo and pacing to the movie also feels a little uneasy and the the weird fucked up things are kind of like sprinkled in yeah it definitely pulls the string and then eases off yeah yeah it kind of like there's highs and lows which i think in a way end up being more effective than just like a relentless thing because then you can kind of start tuning it out right but it's like it makes you feel like comfortable again right before something weird happens. Yeah. I also feel like there's a establishing shot early on in the movie, which I feel like really establishes the atmosphere. And it's when Ellen Bernstein, after she's like done filming or whatever, and she says she's going to walk home and it's just like her walking around. There's like yeah. kids dressed up for Halloween. Right. And they play the theme. And I love that sequence. I think it's like great. I mean, nothing happens in it, but. Yeah. Well. We'll talk about this like once we start getting into it a little bit more, but I think that the movie benefits a lot from the filmmaking style of yeah, the 70s. Absolutely. My favorite time. There's no rush. You just absolutely. like you take yeah. your time with the characters, you right. like insert yourself in their world a little bit. So you, everything that ends up happening hits more. Yeah, I mean it it goes back to the the hangout feeling. It's not like this is a hangout movie, but it's just you have these scenes that you feel like as time went on in filmmaking, they'd be like, we need to just cut this out. Like, it doesn't serve the movie in any way. And I, I think a lot of these movies and, like, these parts, it does help so much with, like, establishing, like, the atmosphere. You could not overstate the cultural significance of this film. And not only amongst horror fans and its place in horror history, but well, even at the time. What's that? It carries on generation after generation. I just feel like there's always, like, a new wave of kids coming in and like discovering the exorcist like it's just so famous yeah and what i was saying is like even outside of its legacy in the horror realm even at the time in 73 it was like this collision of what was considered the old world versus the modern age or traditional religion versus scientific reasoning right and it's this cultural battle that seemingly is constantly being fought in america (laughs) even up until the present day that's right but things were a lot less testy maybe in 73 although i I, i'm sure like the 60s obviously were very turbulent maybe things were calming down by 73 but the way that friedkin and blatty like set this story up it sort of catches you off balance as to like who is who in this story and who is pushing in what direction and what it all means because ultimately It's a story about the mystery of faith and faith in the unknown and the existence of life after death and the possibility of good and evil spirits beyond the human realm. But it's also like a very dense character study about Father Karras and a mother, Chris McNeil, who is basically pushed to the limits of what you could possibly do for a child in need, for your child in need. Like what can you possibly do they do such a great job of you buying these characters too yeah and i feel like that's such a big part of it 
Because the, the thing that always makes a horror movie work best is when, as a viewer, you can't provide the answer to the characters. Because if you're watching a horror movie and you're like, well, why didn't they just drive away? Or oh, why yeah, didn't they right. just do this? Or why didn't they just do that? And if it's something that's like inescapable, that usually makes for the best types of horror movies where Absolutely. you can't like think like, okay, Nightmare on Elm Street. Well, you have to fall asleep. Oh, right. You have yeah. to sleep. Or Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's like, well, everyone in the town is in on this. Yeah. We can't get away from this. <laughs> right. You know, stuff like that. In this movie, it's a unique situation because theoretically you could walk away, but it, there's the bond of a mother and a daughter. It's like she's not going to leave her child in this house right, right. to deal with this. When you factor in the idea of a foe that you don't believe in at first or you're not sure if you believe in or you don't know what to believe and you have to like be convinced over time and then to take it the step further, you're going to ha- then have to convince somebody that you would have never thought you would have to convince a priest. Sure. Yeah, like, right. I know. You're, like, this is your thing. Yeah. Why don't you believe me? <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about Friedkin's selected filmography for a minute. I just wanted to shout that out. You brought it up for a second. Okay, yeah. Prior to The Exorcist, he does The French Connection in 71, classic. Then The Exorcist. I guess that's maybe that gave him a little bit of rope to be able to convince them that this was a movie that needed to be made. Well, it was a huge book. Yeah. It was a bestseller. Okay, really popular. yeah. Yeah. I do think that Warner Brothers at various points was, were like seeing the footage and being like, what is this? This is insane. Yeah. Like they thought it was going to be a disaster or silly. I would. Okay. Yeah. They were like, this looks ridiculous. Sometimes horror movies, it all needs to like come yeah. together in the right, right way before it looks right. Yeah. You talked about that on the, the Scream episode yeah. with the mask. But yeah, I, I, I can see. I mean, there's parts where she looks kind of o- almost out of like a kid's movie. But, right, but it has to be like the right build. It's kind of like Jaws, right, where the yeah. shark is so fake looking, but it's built up in the movie to right, that point right. where you're like, it could be anything. You're just so in it. Yeah, point. yeah, exactly. So after The Exorcist, he's never really able to capture that kind Mainstream of success ever magic. again. Obviously, when you make a movie that's as successful financially, you're, you're going to be hard pressed to top it, but he never really got close. So he does Sorcerer in 77. It's a very well-respected film. Stars Roy Scheider. It sounds like it's supernatural. It's not, but it came out the week either before or after Star Wars. It was completely overlooked. Yeah, gone. Then he does Cruising in 1980. Just a cool movie. <laughs> we'll talk about Cruising a little bit later because it's tied in with this movie. Never going to be a mainstream hit. No chance. <laughs> yeah. You want to talk about a movie that's rated X. Then he does To Live and Die in L.A. in 85. Gets great reviews. Not like a huge hit, but there's a lot of comparisons to the French Connection. That's it's, what I wanted to watch when we ended up watching Tammy and the T-Rex, or one of the nights that you brought <laughs> over a bunch of Blu-rays. I'm skipping over stuff. Obviously, he yeah. does movies like Blue Chips and stuff. It's like, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> I kind of like Blue Chips, but it seems so weird that he made that. Yeah, he did dabble in Studio Fair. Yeah. He makes Jade in 95. Sort of like at the point where America had had enough of Joe <laughs> Esterhaus's erotic thriller scripts. He made it to that point, yeah. After like Basic Instinct, after Showgirls, after Sliver, we have Jade, which has David Caruso and Linda Fiorentino. I love Jade, but it's hot trash. All right. That's then he starts doing like weird, time, not weird, but more mainstream Tommy Lee Jones movies. There's a couple in a row, I think like The Hunted and oh, yeah. Rules of Engagement and stuff like that. 
But then he gets weird again with his more recent stuff with Bug in 2006, which I recommended mm-hmm. on this show at oh, one yeah. point. Ashley and Judd. Killer Joe, <laughs> which is a, a fan favorite of me and Matt. Yeah, which I always think that we're going to do on this show at some point. We might. Yeah. <laughs> it's I, a really weird movie. Maybe our last episode. <laughs> Tracy Letts wrote both Bug and Killer Joe. They offered The Exorcist to Arthur Penn, who I think he directed like Bonnie and Clyde. Okay. Maybe. And The Chase and like a few other things. Stanley Kubrick and Mike Nichols. And they all turned it down. Oh, wow. I, I could definitely see a, a Mike Nichols, or of course, a Stanley Kubrick. I think at one point, Bogdanovich maybe turned it down because he was a hot commodity coming off of The Last Picture Show, which yeah. was like 71, I think. I, it feels like that would have been a disaster, but... <laughs> Although he's like one of those dudes that like he claims he turned down like everything. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think he says he turned down The Godfather as well. <laughs> I think Hitchcock was also somebody that they tried to get to do this. Oh, wow. This doesn't really seem like this is Hitchcock's thing. No. He never went like this vulgar with it. Really? Yeah. So I guess very quickly we should touch on like Friedkin's old school quote-unquote style as a director, which nowadays almost yeah. everything he did would be seen as problematic. Well, you were talking to me about it a little bit before the show, and it, I mean, it is, it's like the same stuff that I think we talked about on the Shining episode with Kubrick and like the shit that he was pulling to like, yeah, you know, get real reactions. I mentioned that Ellen Burstyn and Linda Blair both were injured. Linda Blair was freezing cold during the, the scenes where her bedroom set is refrigerated. Yeah. And it's one thing for like the adults. <laughs> I mean, you've got. I don't think like... he like, because he. I think he did like slap people. I don't think he slapped her or anything. Oh, wow. I never saw like there was any sort of physical thing with Linda Blair, but like, yeah, it was very intense. A lot of trying to provoke reactions out of people, doing things that they weren't expecting, firing a blank right oh, next yeah. to people's heads so that they would react a certain way. Wow, it was just a lot of crazy shit. Yeah, he seems like he has like a reputation for being kind of hard to work with, uh, very set in his ways, a little bit abrasive in his manner of like getting things that he wants. Whether it's the score for this movie and his reaction to what the original <laughs> one was, like throwing it in the dumpster in front of the composer. <laughs> it's like when we tried to get on like a podcast network and we handed someone an episode. I'll say this though: hard to argue with the results. <laughs> So, okay, like I said, we're going to mostly focus on the original theatrical cut. That's the version you can check out on HBO Max right now. But I wanted to mention very quickly the version they released in the year 2000, which was billed as, quote, the version you've never seen, I think, on home video release. It's called the Extended Director's Cut. Which was the first version that I saw. Yeah, I think before we were going to do this episode, I had seen each version of the film once. And then in preparation for this, I watched each version once again. Mm -hmm. It's a movie that you don't necessarily need to watch over and over. And no, I think it's better that you don't because it retains some of its power that way if you go a long time in between viewings. I agree. You can still be caught off guard yeah. by her screaming, fuck me, Jesus, where you're just like, oh my God, like slamming the volume down in my apartment right, building, yeah, like, oh God. <laughs> yeah, I think if this was something that you wanted to watch every October, I think eventually it would sort of lose its mystique over time. Yeah, 
I think it, it works for a single viewing or a spaced out viewing, but there's parts of it where it almost feels boring, I feel like, if you've watched it recently. Well, yeah, any movie, probably. Sure. I think overall I prefer the original theatrical cut, although there's one major difference in the extended director's cut that I wish was in the theatrical cut to make it perfect. So the beginning and the ending are different, but they're not really that important. I think the beginning is better in the theatrical version. It it skips over the little shot of the house and goes right into Northern Iraq, which is a way better open. Yeah, I know. Open on that like hot sun and the Islamic chanting. It's way more disorienting. I think it's messed up in the director's cut. I don't like it. The ending is, the difference is, it's completely different, really, but it doesn't really change anything. It's just like a whole extra part with Kinderman and Father Dyer that's yeah completely unnecessary. And the the thing that I don't really love about the director's cut is there's more demon faces cut into it to the point where it feels like way too much and it's going overboard. Yeah, it, it loses its effectiveness. It's exactly what we just talked about if you watch The Exorcist too many times. It's like right. keeping it in where it is in the theatrical version is way better because it seems fucking scary right but the most famous scene and i'm going to talk about the thing that i like last but the most famous thing is the spider walk scene yeah in which i can remember people talking about and and being one of the things that i expected to be most scared of but i kind of remember my first time seeing it i think certainly overly anticipated i just i remember it came and went like so quick and then you're just kind of like Oh, that seemed kind of fucked up. You're more reacting at like how quick it happens in the movie, but then it kind of things kind of return to normal yeah. right after that, which you wouldn't think that's would happen. the biggest thing that jumps out to me, other than the fact that it's clearly not Linda Blair doing it. Yeah, yeah. The person is just way taller looking to me. It just it's a contortionist who did the stunt, but she was also like held up by wires and. In 1973, like Friedkin could not come up with a way to hide the wires. It just yeah. was like way too obvious. And so when he was like making cuts, that was one of the first things to go. I know like William Peter Blatty was like pissed and didn't talk to Friedkin for years he because that of some scene of the stay. Well, a, a lot of the things that he oh, cut, okay, yeah. including the thing that I liked the, the best, which yeah, yeah. I'll talk about in a second. But I ultimately think the spider walk scene sucks. It happens way too early in the movie, there's no reaction to it long term. It just seems like that's a point of no return incident that would change things dramatically. And yet when you watch the version of the movie with it inserted in there, it's like nothing has changed because that happened. They're still going on being like, there's a lesion on her brain. Yeah, it just, I don't love it. The thing that I do wish was in the theatrical version, though, is the first time that Chris takes Regan to the doctor and they do a bunch of like normal tests on her. And that's where you first find out that she's like using this vulgar language out of nowhere. Yeah. And it's really the right way of escalating the situation because in the theatrical version, once you've seen that scene and then it's missing, it does feel like all of a sudden all this crazy shit is happening with no explanation. Yeah. And you were talking to me about it before the show. And I remember the scene now. I I remember that scene being unsettling. There's something more unsettling about the doctor talking about this happening than seeing it happen. Yeah, because you don't even see Reagan swear. You see the doctor tell Chris, like, oh, she was, like, using this crazy language out of nowhere. And then the doctor, like, quotes what she says. And you're like, what? Yeah, right. <laughs> and it also Sweet shows Reagan. Chris really exhausting all of her options. Because the whole point is 
throughout the movie, she has to like exhaust every conceivable option of doctors and psychiatrists and all these different tests and different scans on her brain and all this shit before she's finally confronted with what has to happen, which is an exorcism. Whereas when you're missing that scene, you don't quite have that whole like feeling of like, well, she's tried everything for so long. Right. It really like expedites that in a way that it doesn't like cheapen the theatrical cut at all because before you know that it's missing, you wouldn't notice, but it helps, I think, tell the story. It's a great addition. It's the one thing from the director's cut that I really like, the one yeah, major yeah. change. Yeah. Otherwise, the theatrical cut, I think, is better. All right, let's get into it. Let's start at the beginning. Like I said, you know, we're not experts. We're going to probably omit certain things, but we're going to do our best and, and go through it. Yeah, absolutely. The movie opens in northern Iraq. So I feel like this is such a weird opening. Like, the fact that we spend 10 minutes... The opening 10 minutes of the movie yes here following this character and i actually think this is one of the things that's really cool about it how you never really get the full story with Marin. <laughs> yeah until know? those ridiculous prequel movies right, that right, which almost of make them it wor- worse but the fact that they have this this is part of the story even though you're not really ever given the story yeah and this is where a lot of the the sound mixing and like the disturbing noises are like first introduced. And then we'll also very subtly be used later in the movie to sort of like signify trouble or signify bad shit is happening. Yeah. Everything is very tense through this whole sequence. There's the part where there's like almost a jump scare because he almost gets hit by the car. Yeah. And then he's just like trembling, like uncontrollably. There's Islamic chanting. We're at an archaeological dig in an ancient city. We meet Father Marin, played by Max von Sydow, who at the time was actually only 44, yeah. but was put in a ton of makeup to seem older. And this reminds me of the old lady from Hook, That's right. where you're just like, all these years later, you're like, how is this person still alive? They were ancient I, I know. a million years ago. When, when Max was- von Sydow only just recently died this year and he seems like he's on the verge of death in 1973 when i was watching it with Lindsay, i was like isn't this crazy that i mean this was in the 70s this guy was on game of thrones like a couple years ago (laughs) (laughs) Marin is a veteran catholic priest who once performed an exorcism in the 1950s and this is the background information that comes out over the course of the film. But it, what's he doing here now? It almost is now? cheapened by having a prequel movie. Yeah, I you know, know what I mean. Like, I, I it's do. actually better to just set up your characters with backstories, but you don't need to like give us everything. You just need to like introduce us to who they are. Everything's and so it works vague effective. around yeah. him, and, and the fact that he just when when he shows up again later. And just gets right to it. Yeah. You know the deal. Like, they don't have to say a lot. And, it, yeah, the, all of the ways to, like, let you know that there's some weird history between this demon and Marin is just, like, very subtle. Oh, yeah, the demon is calling Marin out at one point. You're like, yeah, yeah. oh, that's weird. Right. <laughs> there's a discovery of an amulet, and it's a demon that Marin recognizes and whose origins and history with which he is familiar. Yeah, it's weird. It it does beg the question, like, what was Marin doing here? Yeah, I wasn't really sure what priests had to do with archaeological digs, but those other yeah. two priests later are just kind of like, yeah, he's on these digs. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. The discovery of this amulet 
seems to unnerve him and disturb him, but we're not getting any explanation yet. And then this sequence basically ends with him staring down the statue. Yeah, there's a giant version of this statue of the demon. It's like this animal man hybrid has like a serpentine penis. Oh, yeah. Almost like a some sort of a cat face or something. I can't really tell what animal this was, or like a, a dragon a face or something. I don't know. And as he's looking at this, that's where like the dogs are fighting and like the yeah. snarling of the dogs gets like louder and louder and louder. And there's like the bees buzzing like underneath. That's right. Yeah. And just like just this like cacophony of sound, crazy sound that transitions like into the next part of the movie. The demon seen, but not named throughout the film is Pazuzu, a demon known in Assyrian and Babylonian mythology as the demon that brings famine during the dry seasons and locusts during the rainy seasons. He was the king of the demons of the wind. Doesn't seem like a great guy. I was finding some debate amongst fans of the film as to whether the demon who actually possesses Reagan later is literally supposed to be Pazuzu or not. Who's to say? How do you know? I know. Well, I think a lot of people take their information from the various books by okay. Blatty and stuff. But uh, well, fair. All right. If the source material says it's not. Well, I don't know if it does or not, but they have all these theories that this is just the version of this with which Marin sees, and it's not necessarily that thing, that that amulet, that face you're seeing. It's not necessarily the same thing. Okay. But then I was like, well, then what is the point of all of this other stuff if it's not... <laughs> yeah, I know. It's hard to say. That's the thing. It feels like it needs to be. But people seem to have strong opinions on that. I, I don't know. I don't really think it matters ultimately to this movie. Sure. <laughs> and the result of it. So now we're in Georgetown, where recently divorced actress Chris McNeil, played by Ellen Burson, is living on location with her 12-year-old daughter, Reagan, played by Linda Blair, while starring in a film directed by her friend, Burke Dennings. Georgetown, by the way, just makes for like, a great setting the production value of all the shots like the house the stair set by the house yeah there's just like it makes for a really cool location for the movie yeah in the dc area right on campus there of the school yeah a lot of catholicism stuff mixed into it blatty himself went to georgetown and he based this story off of a real life exorcism that was performed in 1949 on a young boy oh wow i think it actually took place in maryland and then also in st louis it went on for like months or something good lord obviously people can debate whether or not a demonic possession is real but the actual exorcism did happen and there were notes and stuff in those notes is what happens in this movie okay including some of the things that they're some of the things that friedkin misinterpreted like a head spinning all the way around yeah yeah (laughs) Stuff like that. Right, right, right. (laughs) It's simple enough, though. There's noises in the attic. There's windows being opened. It's some pretty standard haunted house shit at first. Yeah. Chris doesn't really know what's going on. It's not really anything major. She thinks there's rats in the attic. But as you mentioned, and I, I think it's pretty cool that you picked up on this, too, the film stretches its legs in a way that films of the 1970s often did. Quiet character moments extended scenes that are not necessarily plot driven like Chris walking home from That's the right. set the one day. Yeah. In other words, the type of stuff that places you deep into 
the character's world and makes you invested in the story. The type of stuff most films nowadays no longer bother with. Absolutely. And and we'll get to the, the Karis stuff, but like how much time is spent on him, you feeling like this is a normal guy, this is not a priest. The way that modern films just sort of cut this stuff out, it makes them feel so much more disposable. And a movie like The Exorcist, there's no rush to Absolutely. be like, well, we need to have a jump scare five minutes into this or else people are going to get upset. It's like there's no hurry because there's a confidence in the story. Yeah. And it's the, like we know that this is going to get fucked up. There are We don't need to like. Right. This isn't a music video. I enjoy just the slow burn establishment of a world. You're starting to feel like these characters, you're knowing who they are. It just, yeah, nothing feels rushed. I think it could be argued that the use of tubular bells by Mike Oldfield here is one of the most random genius strokes ever, which then I think has to be considered an influence on... Coscarelli for Phantasm. Okay, yeah. And also John Carpenter Halloween, for Halloween. Right. Very I agree. similar yeah. sounding. I think all of them you can sort of tell the difference, but it's almost like a genre. Yes, absolutely. And it's just because like Friedkin was like pissed at the composer and hated it and was like, fuck this, I'm throwing this away. And then was like in some executive's office at Warner Brothers and they had like the new album from Mike Oldfield and they like put it on. And, like, the song Tubular Bells is, like, 12 minutes long or something. Oh, yeah. It's some prog rock bullshit. But the opening is this, and he's right, like, oh, this would work. It's awesome, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, like, a subtleness to it that just fits the vibe so perfectly. Father Damien Karras, played by first-time actor in a film, Jason Miller, who I think was a stage actor, maybe, who had been in, like, plays and stuff. But I think this is his first film. Did he go on to do much else? I, I don't know. I mean, I know him from this movie. I he has I'm sure he's in other stuff. I didn't really. Yeah, nothing noteworthy. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I didn't want to get too carried away with listing everyone's filmography yeah, after the Friedkin's Friedkin enough. thing. He's a Jesuit priest on campus, struggling with his faith for seemingly a variety of reasons, but most notably the illness and then eventual death of his mother. Yeah, I, I mean, you kind of feel like he's a little bit too over the top with that he's a mama's boy (laughs) yeah when you see her she is like pretty old i think it's more the manner well that's true in her being alone yeah it's confusing because she seems to live in new york city but then there's a scene where he goes to her apartment right it's very confusing and then also i think he does just travel to new york but they don't really make that clear right so it's sort of jarring but then also when you find out she's dead right yeah, Isn't that like, that's like, just revealed by Father Dyer at the party. Because you had just, not that long before that, he's going to visit her in whatever hospital. That horrible in. hospital. Right, yeah. <laughs> Karis is also a psychiatrist, and he's like a psychiatrist amongst the priests. Oh, yeah. I think because of the rules that exist when you're a priest, there's probably like a stronger connection to family and to your mother and stuff you can't really get married or anything right he took like a vow of poverty so he's sort of living in a horrible place by himself oh i know drinking nice scotch though yeah he's a priest that drinks and smokes oh yeah (laughs) he wants out of catholicism i know that's right i'm unfit for duty just let me out of this yeah you mentioned it that hospital it's like a real 
horror show where his mother ends oh, up. Yeah. And I think it's his feeling of helplessness because he's just unable to really do anything. And his uncle is basically like, hey, you went to like Harvard and all these great places to become a psychiatrist. If you were just a regular psychiatrist on Park Avenue, you could pay for all kinds of great treatment. Uh, right. Yeah. But you're a priest, so you don't have any money. I know. You do have this sense that he's like, you know, I feel like my life could have gone a different way. We find out pretty early that back at the house, the McNeil house, Reagan's been playing with a Ouija board she found in the house. And when she plays with it, she communicates with someone that she refers to as Captain Howdy. Hey, where'd this come from? I found it. Where? Closet. Huh. You been playing with it? Yep. You know how? I'll show you. Wait a minute, you need two. No, you don't. I do it all the time. Oh, yeah? Well, let's both play. You really don't want me to play, huh? No, I do. Captain Howdy said no. Captain who? Captain Howdy. Who's Captain Howdy? You know, I make the questions and he does the answers. Oh, Captain Howdy, yeah, I see. nice. Oh, I bet he is. Here, I'll show you. Captain Howdy, do you think my mom's pretty? Captain Howdy? Captain Howdy, that isn't very nice. Well, maybe sleeping. I feel like this early stuff with Captain Howdy does just remind you of The Shining, right? I always... Yeah, a little bit. She does this, like, the Tony thing. The Captain Howdy thing is weird because, yeah, it does seem like Chris's initial impression is that it must be like an imaginary friend maybe or something like that. But it's unclear what Reagan thinks because clearly yeah. it's not an imaginary friend to Reagan. There's something weird going on, but she acts like it's kind of normal at right. first. I know. Now, this is a very subtle thing in the movie, and I don't know if it's ever been confirmed, but I do think that the name Captain Howdy is revealed as to where that name might come from almost immediately in the next scene where she's laying in bed with the photo play magazine with her and her mother on the cover. Okay. And it's talking about her parents' divorce. Yeah. And it says Howard walks out on wife and daughter or whatever. I see. So her dad's name is Howard. I gotcha. And so the demon, in a way to present itself to her as like a friendly face like a this is the mask of friendliness that it's wearing right, to okay. gain her trust yeah no i did I it's playing on her father's name i gotcha all right in no, a weird way did not know that captain howdy here is gaining trust and access through reagan who is i think supposed to be going through like a difficult time because of the divorce yeah the role of the ouija board itself is kind of up for debate how much actually went on with this Ouija board? Well, does she summon this demon with the Ouija board? Was the demon there anyway? I was never taking it that the Ouija board was. I think part the of Ouija summoning. board has like a specific role, but it has more to do with Karis, and I'll explain that later. Okay. I think that what the film is really about and what Karis's crisis of faith is really about is a little bit different than what you would think. I think it's something more about his opinion of mankind and whether we deserve to be saved, not yeah. whether or not God is real. He it's is more like whether or not we're cynical position, yeah. Terrible. Right. <laughs> we'll get to that later. 
So over time, there's like escalation. There's noises in the attic. Reagan complains that her bed was shaking and thus she wasn't able to get to sleep. Chris sort of just doesn't know what she's talking about. Yeah. Just thinks she's just stupid kid. saying dumb stuff as a kid. I do think it's a legit scare for me when she is in the attic and the flame yeah. on her candle or whatever like sparks up. Yeah, she's having like a little bit of a debate with one of the hired help people. That's right, yeah. Who's around, and he's, he's saying there's no rats in the attic, and she's saying I, that there is. Right. How vested he is in this argument that there's no rats. Yeah, well, Carl does factor into the plot a little bit later, in my opinion. I think you're supposed to believe he's the one that puts the crucifix in the room, even I though. I think so, too. He says he, he, he yeah. didn't. Simultaneous to all this stuff going on, with the house and weird shit happening, there is a desecration of the Statue of Mary in the nearby church on the Georgetown campus. It's That's like, right. It's got like the cone boobs, almost like Madonna would yeah. wear later, but like also like a phallic cone yeah. in the crotch. Just like a horrible looking vandalism. It and is then, weird, and it's one of these things that just kind of adds to that overall general feeling of being unsettled. But it's weird that. This is happening, I guess, in the context of what's going on with Reagan. Like, what what is happening with this demon? Well, I think it's clearer in the novel, but I think that Reagan is the one that desecrated the statue. Oh, wow. Because, what an operation. No security cameras. Yeah, I think she sneaks out of her room as the demon several times, and you're supposed yeah. to just sort of figure that out for yourself. But this is the first one, although at this point in the film you have no idea because right after this is where the missing doctor scene would go. That's right. And so that's like the first time where she's like swearing and you're like, wait, what's going on with her? And like the weird stuff in the house now is more tied in with her directly. And the strange happenings lead into a party at the McNeil's. Burke, the director, his drunken yeah. antics where he <laughs> embarrasses himself are immediately overshadowed after, <laughs> after Reagan who has been put to bed, then comes back downstairs unannounced and tells one of the guests, who happens to be an astronaut, that he's going to die up there. Yeah. This She's- is such a great sequence. I mean, it's a, just another like collection of characters hanging out. Again, feels like very genuine. It feels like a real event that would happen. And then her just showing up, it's just like slam on the brakes, complete mood change. Yeah, it's very haunting to have this little girl say that because it's unclear if she even knew this guy was an astronaut. It's right. like, what is she talking about? And then she pees all over the floor. Yeah, just and everyone's, scene. It's just a great reaction scene because you can just see the other guests. They don't know what to do. Yeah. The one woman just looks away, Chris, like embarrassed. can you get your kid out of here? <laughs> now, Scary Movie 2 sucks, but <laughs> the opening sequence where they parody this, where like, because... Before Reagan comes downstairs, Father Dyer is playing piano and yeah, he's yeah. like doing these old show tunes and shit. <laughs> it's Scary Movie 2 where the priest is on the piano and he starts playing Shake Your Ass and like they're all singing it. <laughs> and then the, the character that's parodying Reagan comes down and pees all over the floor and it's like an ocean of pee. Right. It just goes on forever. I don't know. They always <laughs> manage to, to squeeze in a couple of good things in those movies. Later that night, Chris witnesses firsthand Reagan's bed violently shaking even with the two of them on it and I think at this point most people would be like well this has to be supernatural right 
we talked about the escalating events in the Blair Witch Project. Like, how long could you hold on to reality and be like, "There's just no try to find a logical way explanation." Yeah, that this is supernatural. Like, it has to be something real. I, I don't know. I've always been like very willing to jump <laughs> to the supernatural. I don't think it would take much for me at all. I'd be like, oh, my God, this is a ghost (laughs) immediately. Like, there would be no convincing needed. Maybe that's just a lifetime of watching horror movies. Well, if there's different fork-in-the-road moments where decisions could be made, after this one, Reagan on the bed, like, she's in her normal state, and she's, like, reacting like she's scared to this. It feels like if there was ever a moment where Chris was like, let's just get the fuck out of this house, it would be after this one. Yeah, and that's another thing that's sometimes up for debate. It's like, when exactly is she possessed in the hypnotism scene that comes later? Yeah. There seems to be the suggestion that it comes in and out, although that's probably only Reagan's perception of it. Yeah, like, I don't think it... I mean, I know I'm like going on a whole thing. It's like, yeah. I, I'm sure like people of different religions are listening to this. And I don't know how <laughs> many people actually think about whether or not demonic possession is real. But I think if you were to like make the assumption that it is real, I don't think it works that way where it's like, yeah. <laughs> where guess- it's like a restaurant for the demon where they're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to stop in over at Reagan's <laughs> tonight and have a quick meal and then I, head out. I it's guess, like, I think they're in. Yeah, Once they're in, right. they're in. They're I, not leaving. I think my interpretation of it was, yeah, like she is possessed all the time, but maybe there's like periods of it going dormant or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where yeah. She, she's more in control of herself. But I think by the time she's swearing and shit in the deleted doctor scene, and then especially here where she says that thing to the astronaut and then pees on the floor. I think it's already inside of her. At oh that yeah. Point. So running out of the house, which maybe would be the logical response probably wouldn't work. I know, but I'm just thinking, I think it was, is worth a shot. At right. This point. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree because she's already heard the noises in the attic. And now this is something she's witnessing firsthand. There's no explanation for this. Right. <laughs> Over the course of this film. And I think this is something that, Friedkin and and Blatty were doing intentionally as more of like an ironic twist on it. There is the atheistic secular movie actress, and she ends up having to be the one to convince a priest who is losing his faith and seemingly never believed in exorcisms to begin with that this is real and that this (laughs) needs to happen. She never really wavers on him being the one, though. They have this kind of connection from we see him early in the movie peeking in on the filming that she's doing. Yeah, and With interest. she sees him talking to that other priest. That's right. So, And then she asks about him to Father Dyer, which for some reason Father Dyer is like at this party and she like knows him. Yeah, right. It's never really explained why. They have like, it's like Carmela and the priest from Sopranos. They have like one of those relationships. <laughs> yeah. A lot of late nights. Cock teasing. <laughs> <laughs> one of the parts that scared me the most the first time I watched this was Karis's dream where he is trying to cope with the death of his mother and he's not taking it very well because of the circumstances under which she died. And then he dreams that he is in New York City and she comes out of the subway and he's yelling oh, at right. her. But like he can't speak and there's no sound and he can't hear her. And then she descends back down into the subway. And then that first cut in of that demon face which I think was just a different actress like doing makeup tests for what they would end up doing with oh okay Reagan later yeah and then he just like took shots of that in 
and it's become one of the more famous images of the movie is that demon face. Yeah, this whole sequence is kind of cool, and you feel like this is something that's certainly been replicated in other movies. Yeah, I think like the first time I watched this movie, I was like, okay, this is pretty good. I know this movie has like this huge reputation. I'm not like sure what to make of it. And then they throw in this first cut in of that demon face, and I was like... I know. I fell on the floor. That's I was like, right. what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I started to get like kind of that nervous feeling of like, oh no. Yeah. Shut it off. <laughs> because in dorm life when you're in college, I probably started this movie at like one in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I remember like when I finished it, it was like the beginning of a semester. So it was still very warm out and people were just like out all night basically. Oh, right. And I got like a phone call. On my cell phone. This was like the early days of cell phones for yeah. me, probably. And Just that, it would be enough to scare me. I know. Well, it was a, it was like a prank call, or like a oh, weird wow. number. It was like somebody saying something weird when I answered it. And I was like, this is too fucking weird. Yeah. I could not cope with it. And then I think I like went out and met my friend at like three in the morning somewhere. <laughs> College is weird in general. Absolutely. But yeah, Karis's dream really shook me up. As far as what's going on with Reagan and everything... There's no answers from doctors or medicine. Her mental state seems to be declining, growing more and more chaotic. Oh, yeah. She's acting strange. She's saying bizarre things, just being weird. Talking about Karis so much, I wanted to bring this up. It has to be intentional that his first name is Damien, right? I don't know. What was the name Damien associated with? before the omen i don't know maybe that's the first time that that was it always had was that one of the names of satan or something i don't know i don't know it's hard to like separate popular culture from like the actual yeah. <laughs> like religious texts and stuff because satan seems to have like a million names like lucifer and that's beelzebub true. and all this stuff so you're like i do associate it with satanic stuff but that might just be because of the omen yeah okay that's true which I think was after this? I don't know what year it was. I can't remember either. I don't know. One of the tests that they run on Reagan is this arteriogram, and it's done in shocking realism, and this is where people were passing oh, yeah. out. Like They basically have to like tap into her carotid artery, and so like blood was like spurting out of her neck. This all feels very real. Not just the look of it, the procedural stuffiness to the whole scene. In the arteriogram scene... The bearded man who assists the doctor is Paul Battison or Paul Bateson. I'm not really sure how to say it. He was an x-ray tech at NYU Medical Center where that scene was shot, and he managed to get that small part. In 1979, he was convicted for the murder of a film critic and sentenced to 20 years in prison. However, he also bragged about and was a suspect in the murders of six men whom he said he picked up in gay bars had sex with them, and then murdered and dismembered their bodies and then put them in plastic bags, quote, for fun in 1978 and 79. Doesn't seem like a great guy. They were known as the, quote, bag murders. Although investigators believed his story, he was never charged, and those murders have never technically been solved. Battison was released from prison in 2004. A fictionalized account of this story became the 1980 film Cruising, also directed by William Friedkin. (laughs) It is so weird and just adds to that cursed mystique that there's a potential serial killer in this movie. 
That is nuts. Do you think that that film critic uh, gave him a bad review in this scene? <laughs> the bearded man. No, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think it was related. <laughs> Everything keeps coming back with there being nothing physically wrong with Reagan. Klein. Yes, I'm Dr. Klein. This is Dr. Tanny. Sharon, things have gotten worse since I phoned you. I think you better come upstairs. Is she having spasms again? Yeah, but they've gotten violent. Did you give her the medication I gave you? Yes. What was that? Tazzy. Yeah. Well, that was Ritalin. Where's the doctors? Mother, please! 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 Mother, a bit of a scene when the doctor goes on a house call though and reagan is violently slamming back and forth on her bed and then hits the doctor oh yeah <laughs> and then yells fuck me fuck me yeah i know and i, I pointing again, at her crotch <laughs> these doctors I, I mean i know their whole careers are based off of science but yeah i it mean does come seem on, like man. you would see some of this shit yeah. and be like i don't know what's going on yeah her voice call seems someone else to change but they keep prescribing more tests, and they're not willing to believe what's in front of their faces. Things change, though, when one night while Chris is out, Burke ends up being left to babysit a sedated Reagan. When Chris returns, she is told Burke has died, supposedly from falling down the long flight of steps behind the house. However, over time, it becomes clear that he actually fell from Reagan's window, which overlooks the steps. Burke was a notorious drunk, which we saw evidence <laughs> of, and thus his death is assumed to be an accident at first. I, I feel like this is uh, potentially a direction I'm heading in life. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, Burke's death ends up being investigated by Lieutenant Kinderman. Kinderman interviews Chris, who, with growing horror, starts putting the pieces together as to what may have actually happened. He also consults with Father Karras, the connection, at least to Kinderman, being the strange twisting of Burke's neck, which Kinderman believes is unlikely to have happened as a result of the fall, Yeah, and the recent desecration occurring in the church. So basically, he's just saying there's some satanic Nut. occult vibes going on here. I, it is crazy. Kinderman's investment in this case does seem a bit over the top. I would agree that something's weird, but... We were always reminded on the wire that these guys were just like looking to, you know, close, close the these case. cases. Accident. Know? Done. Yeah. <laughs> Accident. <laughs> Neck completely twisted backwards. Well, it makes you think that maybe we're not getting the full story. Maybe. Totally. They're saying like right off the bat, this is a murder and we got to investigate it. But to the public, they're still trying to push the accident scenario. Oh, yeah. Accident, though. It seems like everyone at the house was pretty. Yeah. I think Burke just fell out the window. That's something he would do. Next, we have the hypnotism scene 
where the demon sort of comes out and ends up attacking the hypnotist. There's like that horrible smell coming out of her mouth. Oh, That's yeah. always like associated with demonic possessions, like sort of a deathly smell. <laughs> yeah, the hypnotism scene is weird though because it, this is where it does get back into that thing where it doesn't feel like the demon is immediately present and has to be summoned out. Are you supposed to take it at all that the, <laughs> the demon was falling under hypnosis even for a second? Because that hypnotist is pretty confident in that. I think it just speaks to my fucked up sense of humor that I find the stuff that the demon says like, kind of funny. I, well, most it is. Of the time. I mean, certainly, yeah, <laughs> as an adult watching this, it is pretty funny just, yeah, how abrasive the demon is and just kind of just a jackass. Yeah, one of the weird fucked up things that I noticed about the casting of this movie, because it took forever to cast Reagan. They could not find the right kind of actress for this. Very difficult. I I know at one point, I think Jamie Lee Curtis was maybe going to do it. She would have been very young at the time. This was like five years before Halloween. Wow, so she that probably would have been, been similar in yeah. age to Linda Blair. That would have been pretty crazy. I don't if think it ended Janet Lee like wanted her to do it. I though. wouldn't think. I was just gonna say, would you want your daughter, like your young daughter, doing this movie? Well, Linda Blair's mom was the one that basically like, pushed her into getting this. Oh boy. But yeah, I was reading about like this conversation that Friedkin had with her when he was like interviewing her to like potentially be in the movie, and he was like asking her about it, and she said that she read the book. Wow. And he was like, well, what do you think about different stuff? And she's like, well, yeah, she does like, you know, some bad stuff when the demon is inside of her. And he's like, well, what kind of bad stuff? And she says like, well, she kills some people and she <laughs> she masturbates with a crucifix. And he's like, well, what does that mean? Like, what do you think? And she's like, it's like jacking off, right? <laughs> she's like saying like all this crazy <laughs> shit. And I was like, I can't wow. imagine a director talking with like a 12 year old actress like about this kind of stuff he's just like oh you read the book well the movie's not gonna be that bad so (laughs) you'll be fine doctors believe that reagan is convinced she's possessed and thus recommend an exorcism under the premise that the patient will believe the quote-unquote spirit has left if they believe the exorcism has happened and worked so the whole thing is basically psychosomatic which by the way it seems like Karis is kind of buying into this yeah the force of suggestion right in other words the patient has convinced themselves of this i think chris is suspect right away because she's like well we're not religious where would would she she get this idea where would she know about this stuff this is so elaborate to be carrying this on but she's so desperate she just wants an answer because no one can really give her one and it's this frustrating wall she's come up against in terms of yeah. all these doctors. And it and- does seem like no matter how she tries to like level with these people, listen, I'm a completely sane person. The shit that's going on is beyond what you're saying it is. Yeah. Chris finds a crucifix in Reagan's bedroom. She confronts one of the people in the house, Carl. He denies it. But this is like a weird moment because she takes the crucifix out of the bedroom. But then that's the first time that like Kinderman comes over and has that conversation with her. And so this is the other time where you're supposed to just figure out that Reagan has snuck back out of her room. That's right. Because she, (laughs) she's going to have that crucifix later in a minute. Oh yeah. (laughs) And that's when I started to think like, well, 
okay, so Reagan must be the one that committed the desecration in the church. Yeah, I guess that's I googled right. it, yeah. and that's implied. I guess much yeah. more clear in the book that that's probably what happened. Okay, okay, yeah. Wow, that went right by me. I never thought that that was... It makes complete sense now talking through it, but it, it just didn't cross my mind. This is like one of those movies that there's people that talk about it and break down every single thing and really think about it, even though like I think on the surface it doesn't necessarily seem like that. But it has such a fervent fan base that people have talked yeah. about it and discussed it for you know over 40 years now. That's true. Like we said, even with the back round with father Marin and whatnot i mean it just seems like there's a lot there that they don't give you that you could potentially go down a rabbit hole trying to figure out okay so we finally <laughs> we finally reached the crucifix masturbation scene and this is just yeah it's shocking. a wild fucking scene. Uh, almost a disturbing sight and it still feels shocking in 2020 this is not something where you're like having to put yourself into the mindset of being in 1973 it certainly makes it even more shocking, yeah. but even just watching it in 2020, there's no way that this scene, as is, would oh, be in no. an R-rated movie. No way. No way. Especially and factoring in that she's supposed to be 12, and I know that supposedly the stunt double, the other woman who wore the makeup sometimes, was doing some of the more fucked up stuff. I don't know how much I buy that. <laughs> I think that might be just like covering their ass later. Probably. I think Linda Blair did do a lot of the crazy shit in this movie. Because I think she did talk about how there was like a, it was like a box with like a sponge on it with the fake red blood on it. And oh, she wow. was like, she didn't really quite understand what she was supposed to be doing. But they're like, just hit that with the cross and then the blood will come out. Yikes. Uh, like, well, I also love how they just completely double down on it too. Because it's shocking you're already at like a 10 on shock level. And then all of a sudden they're like, let's also have her grab her mom's head and shove it down there. It's just <laughs> So they wild. come into the room. Stuff is just like flying around the room. Clearly something supernatural. I mean, it's stuff that is not I, even I'm, connected to her body. It's yeah, just yeah. stuff flying right. around the room. She's violently stabbing herself in the vagina with the crucifix. Blood everywhere. She's screaming, let Jesus fuck you. <laughs> Which... In 1973, I, I mean, people's heads were probably exploding. This I, is like, holy is. shit. Yeah. And then, yes, she grabs Chris's face, puts it in her crotch, is yelling, lick me. Yeah, wow. When Burson gets hit in the face by Regan here and goes flying backwards, she's like on a harness and they pulled the harness so hard that she injured her coccyx and she had like a permanent injury. Wow. That bone that's like right in your tailbone, you know? Permanent injury? Yeah. Holy shit. 
a permanent spinal injury. She was like fucked up. Her scream is real and in pain. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then to top it all off, as if this wasn't enough, then the head starts spinning all the way around. Right. <laughs> and you're like, what the fuck? Yeah. And at, at this point, I, I don't think we need the doctors anymore. Yeah, and you would think that she would lead with this when she's trying to convince Karis later, yet she, it doesn't seem to get mentioned. <laughs> yeah, no one ever really talks about the head spinning around. Supposedly, this was something that Friedkin sort of just misinterpreted and is not supposed to be like a complete 360. Because as I said, I think you would just be dead. Yeah, right. I, I don't think that being possessed by a demon means that you can't die, as we see with what happens with Exactly, and in fact, when you think about it, it almost puts that in question. Believe it or not, though, this scene is much, much worse in the book as it includes genital mutilation and and orgasm and all kinds of shit. Disgusting, Just horrifying. Reagan's voice has now changed under the influence of the demon, and I think this is a good time to bring up Academy Award winner Mercedes McCambridge does the voice of the demon. She was originally uncredited as to give the impression to the audience that Linda Blair was somehow doing the voice, which, as we mentioned, it just seems crazy in retrospect. There's no way. I will say, the voice is pretty great. Yeah, it's awesome. McCambridge consumed raw eggs, chain-smoked, and, as a recovering alcoholic, intentionally fell off the wagon by drinking an excessive amount of whiskey (laughs) to achieve the voice. She was also bound to a chair during the recording sessions. Eventually, though, she changed her mind and wanted credit, having to sue Warner Brothers to get it. And now, if you watch the film with... Is credited. You see her name in there. Yeah. That's sad that she had to sue for that. Well, I think because she had already gone down the path of not being credited. That's right. It had to take a whole thing. Linda Blair received death threats in real life and had to be accompanied by bodyguards hired by the studio because there were people who felt like this was an abomination. It was celebrating Satan. It was some horrible thing. I think it, it really like a celebration. fucked up her life, and she yeah. won't even talk about that time period of having to be with like the bodyguards I and stuff. I believe it, yeah. <laughs> she's like a 12-year-old girl, and people are like thinking she is Satan or that she's some agent of Satan. It's just like... I know. It you is, would like to think that we've gotten better as a society, but we you realize we haven't. I know. People and are people so would dumb. still act that way yeah. now. <laughs> Chris finally meets with Father Karras. They have like an arranged meeting. She has like a black eye. She's like wearing glasses. That's right. Yeah. And he's not in favor. He He's like, no, people don't actually do exorcisms. Priests don't actually know anything about it. It's not like a real thing that we do. Yeah. You probably know more about it than priests. Right. And I do think that he's right to an extent as far as like how things were in the Catholic church at the time. I don't think that there were many, it wasn't like a regular, it was something that people were doing in America. I think maybe in third world countries and stuff, it was maybe still happening from time to time. I was wondering, though, like if after this movie there was an increase in exorcisms. And when I went to look it up, all it took me to was like 2020 articles saying that like exorcisms are on the rise. Oh, wow. The the Catholic Church is like training 100 priests now in America how to do it, whereas almost no priests at one point knew how to do it. It's like, okay, (laughs) they have all these theories as to why they're doing it all the time now. I don't know. I was just like, oh, that's weird. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that these are the articles that came up. 
Although I'm sure in the aftermath of this movie, there probably was like a run of more yeah, exorcisms. Think. More millennials getting possessed these days, all for uh, social media. <laughs> yeah. YouTube celebrities like doing exorcisms or having exorcisms done on them. <laughs> TikTok. I mean, what if a person uh, came to, you know, that was a murderer or criminal of some kind and they, and they wanted some kind of help? I mean, would you have to turn him in? Well, if he came to me for spiritual advice, I'd say no. You wouldn't? No, I wouldn't. Mm. But I would try to convince him to turn himself in. Uh-huh. And uh, how do you go about getting an exorcism? Beg your pardon? If, um, if a person's, you know, possessed by a demon or something, how do they, how do they get an exorcism? Well, the first thing, I'd have to get him into a time machine and get him back to the 16th century. I didn't get you. Well, it just doesn't happen anymore, Miss McNeil. Oh, yes, since when? Well, since we learned about mental illness, paranoia, schizophrenia, all those things they taught me at Harvard. Miss McNeil, since the day I joined the Jesuits, I've never met one priest who has performed an exorcism. Not one. Yeah, well... <clears throat> it just so happens that somebody very close to me is... is probably possessed. And needs an exorcism. Father Karras is my little girl. <laughs> And that's all the more reason to forget about exorcism. Why? I don't understand. To begin with, it could make things worse. Oh, how? Secondly, the church, before it approves an exorcism, conducts an investigation to see if it's warranted. That takes time. Oh, yeah. Meanwhile, it, your daughter... You could do it yourself, No, couldn't I you? couldn't. I need church approval, and that's rarely given. Uh, could you see her? Yes, I could. I could see her as a psychiatrist, but I can't oh, see her. Oh, not a psychiatrist. She needs a priest. She's already seen every fucking psychiatrist in the world, and they sent me to you. Now you're going to send me back to them? Jesus Christ, won't somebody no, help me? No, you don't see, you don't understand oh, your daughter. God, can't you help her? Just help her. The bottom line is, though, Father Karras needs approval from the church. He couldn't just do one on his own, even Nor if he wanted to. does it seem like he would have been able to figure his way around doing one. And yeah. by the way, once it actually happens, I mean, thank God Marin was there. Karras, it's, it's amateur hour with him. <laughs> Yeah, he crumbles immediately. <laughs> he comes to see Reagan, and at this point, she looked kind of fucked up during the masturbation sequence. At this point, though, she is a monster. She's monstrous oh, yeah, in right. appearance. Her face is all cut up. She has She's got like these green dry, eyes. Dried puke all over. Yeah, and when I say green eyes, I don't mean the type of eyes that people have. It's no, it's not, almost like it's a yellowish green. Like. Yeah, and they're just the color is very big. And right. Her lips are all chapped and like fucked up. She speaks in voices. She's able to to know about Karis's mother. She's able to imitate that bum that had asked him for money. I know. It was something that he like turned away from in revulsion and something that seems to haunt him. It's interesting though that there is sort of this dance that still goes on between Karis and, and let's just say the demon. Karis is testing the yeah. demon and the demon 
will be like, oh, I, I don't want to do that. That would be a vulgar display of power. Yeah, like, I think like Pantera named an album after that or okay, something. But, a much too vulgar display of power. Right. But like he's <laughs> also from Star Wars. <laughs> it does kind of sound like that. But he's doing these things as if they're like tests. And well, like, yeah, I think you have to understand, like from the cynic's point of view and not the believer's point of view, which is there is a long history in the Catholic Church of exorcisms. However, a lot of that happened before anybody knew about schizophrenia or mental right. illness yeah. or all the stuff that could happen. Yeah, to a brain. No, and, and so it was then attributed like, oh, this is what was really going on. Yeah, right. during those time periods, and when it worked, which probably wasn't all the time, but if it did work, it was that power of suggestion. It was able to convince them that their problem was some foreign entity, and right. then they were convinced that it left. And that speaks maybe to the power of the human mind. Sometimes they can like be tricked into being different somehow, yeah. even if it seems like it's a disease or something. So he's coming at it from the perspective of he's a psychiatrist. He's learned his whole life. There's all these different mental illnesses. For things. Clearly something's wrong with her, but the point of his character is he doesn't really believe in this stuff. So, And that's his whole like crisis of faith part of it. But like he doesn't think that people could really be possessed by a demonic entity so he's right. he's coming at it from a cynic's point of view so he wants to test the demon quote unquote and find a way to disprove it yeah although you do think that there's already enough things that he can't explain like right away you would take the one voice. look at her and you'd yeah. be like <laughs> this is legit see ya <laughs> did, did it, did it just yeah. like right out of there your mother sit here with his cash would you like to leave a message? I see that she gets it. If that's true, then you must know my mother's maiden name. What is it? What is it? Reagan vomits into Karis's face. They use that certain brand of pea soup. It's disgusting and green. Oh, yeah. Miller's reaction is genuine here because he believed that it was rigged to hit him in the chest. However, it hit him in the face instead, and he was fucking pissed. <laughs> yeah, which comes off here. However, he remains a skeptic despite all of this, and he recommends to Chris that she be put in six months of psychiatric observation at the best hospital she could find to chris's credit it's just like you really think that's gonna help here <laughs> but this is what he says on the outside it's clear though that the mother thing has planted a seed of doubt in his mind and he's like well how did she know about that yeah karis returns and he throws holy water on her and she reacts to it and then we find out that it's not really holy water but then it begs the question of like, well then what is going on well, here's this is where it ties in with the Ouija board, and it ties in with the whole thing being about Karis and not really about Reagan. Okay. Reagan is not really the target, but merely a vessel with which to work against Karis. The demon knows the difference between the real holy water and fake holy water, but Reagan would not. So the demon is reacting 
knowing that the, he, it's reacting in the wrong way to plant this doubt and confusion into Karis's weakened mind where he's not sure what to believe. Okay. It's important to keep in mind that Karis's crisis in faith has less to do with whether or not God exists and much more to do with whether or not mankind is worthy to be saved at all by God. Yeah. The beggar on the streets revolted him and he turned away. And then he has this immeasurable grief regarding the circumstances of his mother's death. These things poison his mind and make him feel like he is terrible and that mankind is terrible. And thus, the significance of the Ouija board is to give you a reason, to give Karis a reason, to give the viewer a reason to think that she somehow brought this on herself. Because if she had done nothing and was completely an innocent 12-year-old girl, which she is, but but she had done nothing to do this, then you would think, okay, this is bad things happening to good people and God should intervene and save her. But if you think that she did something to invite this demon in, which she may or may not have, it's never really clear. Right. Then it gives you that like seed of doubt and be like, okay, well, even if she's a good person, she made a mistake. She did something she shouldn't do. This is a satanic tool. I think there was always like a little bit of controversy amongst like the religious people about Ouija boards. Don't mess around with them. Yeah. And so it's sort of like this red herring of, okay, well, she did something. And that pushes the narrative in Karis's mind that mankind is evil. Mankind deserves to not be saved. And Reagan is not an innocent because she made this mistake. Okay. I think the Ouija board, though, in terms of the actual story is probably irrelevant. I don't, I think it probably had nothing to do with that, but maybe it did. It's, you're not supposed to really know, I think. Yeah. I mean, could be, I I do love though, the actual, uh, (laughs) this scene and how it plays out the demon being panicked over the wall. I think it's like great. Like the way that, I don't know if you want to say like what the voice acting is, but even like her reacting to it, like I think it plays so well actually showing like panic over this yeah and i think that is confusing but i think it's not the demon being tricked it's the demon trying to trick yeah it's doing what Marin says later in the film That's which true. is it's using lies mixed with the truth to confuse you and it's trying to confuse karis because i think that somehow it senses that he's weak and vulnerable and that yeah i think we all see it it can claim him as a victim chris tells father karis that reagan killed burke she sort of just confesses this this information along with the discovery that reagan spoke backwards <laughs> which is such a weird thing i love that that guy just recognizes that too yeah they're in that little recording booth and there's that sign that says like Tescate or T-E-S-K-U-T-E exclamation point above them, like outside of it. Uh-huh. And I think in like Japanese or something that means, please help me. Okay. <laughs> Which will be the words that show up on our stomach yeah. here in a minute. But yeah, that guy's just like, yeah, it is a language. It's English backwards. I can clearly tell that this is just English backwards. And the fact that she used different voices, it starts to change Karis's mind regarding the need for an exorcism. And then he's eventually convinced when he's called back to the McNeil house once again and sees scars form on Reagan's stomach that spell out, help me. Hard to explain that one away. The other weird thing about the recording, though, is clearly the demon is yelling Marin a couple of times. And I don't get how he was explaining away the recording thing. 
He wasn't. I think he was ready at that point because it's all he gets the call while he's listening That's to that. That's true, yeah. And then he sees please help me and then he's like, "All right, fuck it." <laughs> it just so happens that when Karis takes his case for an exorcism to his superiors, Father Marin is from the same area and he is then selected to perform the actual exorcism with Karis assisting. Yeah, well, it doesn't seem like they have a very deep roster. <laughs> They're kind of like well, Marin's done one before. They're casually like, he's at Woodstock, but that actually is just the name of a different seminary okay. school. <laughs> People <laughs> are like, like do they mean acid? Woodstock? Yeah. <laughs> Marin's arrival at the McNeil house is one of the most iconic sequences in oh, all yeah. of horror movies. The fog and the light. That's right. I he mean, gets it's out like of the, the cover cab. of the movie. Yeah, the silhouette with the hat and the briefcase thing. It's awesome. It's epic. I will say the, the movie really has wheels at this point too and we're just on like sort of a non-stop trip here yeah and it really ratchets up with a lot of the best shots and and craziest you things. almost feel like there's going to be more development in fact it's not just the viewer who thinks that Karis is like yeah, he keeps do you like want me to like... bring you up to speed and Marin's like no I know what's going on like let's yeah it almost feels like a grudge match between Marin and this demon like Marin somehow just knows it's this particular demon and this demon somehow figured out a way to get into a place where it would have to be Marin yeah, <laughs> like he's like we're on a collision course right <laughs> <laughs> Marin <laughs> he's like let's start right away and he's like the demon is a liar he'll mix lies with the truth don't believe him. Don't listen to him. Yeah. Karis, of course, can't. <laughs> Marin, great pep talk. I mean, he's like Belichick thinking that Karis is going to be his Brady, but it's really just like <laughs> Karis is like a, a first round quarterback that's out of the, the league, you know, in a couple of years. He's like Matt Leinert. That's right. The set of Reagan's bedroom was kept freezing cold with four large refrigerator units. It was a horrible endurance test, particularly for Linda Blair who was wearing a thin nightgown, just freezing cold. Yeah, although it, it's great. The intensity of this whole sequence, it's just so great. It like, works perfectly because just them entering the room and having to like bundle up and you see their breath and oh, everything, right. you're just like, this is a fucked up place. Yeah. Reagan has all these vulgar, bizarre outbursts, her eyes rolling over white in a, just a crazy visual. The bed lifts off the ground at one point when the exorcism starts which freaks Karis out because I think you're supposed to understand that even though he took the steps to get this going, he even says to the one priest, he's like, oh, I'm not fully convinced, but it meets the criteria. Yeah. And I think when the bed lifts off the ground, he's like, oh, shit. wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> What's <laughs> my, going on? I retract my previous report. I and am it doesn't, convinced. Yeah. It doesn't phase Marin though, but Karis is like, oh God. Yeah. I think through most of the movie, despite her like beating up other dudes <laughs> you have this feeling that like no matter what this is still like an 80 pound 12 year old or whatever yeah we could take this thing on she does seem to exhibit super strength but it's still fairly manageable right but i think at this point you're starting to be like well i don't think i could contend with this thing physically even look at what it's doing she has this really long tongue that she's like almost like lewdly yeah. sticking out and doing stuff with. A little bit more of the head spinning. <laughs> we see during this exorcism while they're reciting the, I don't know what you would really call that stuff. I always just thought it was just like the exorcism chapter of the Bible. 
I don't think there is an extra <laughs> chapter of the Bible. It's no, some I, sort of like a guide. Right, right. <laughs> you can just like buy it at Barnes and Noble. Yeah, yeah. We see the face of the demon <laughs> though, like it's sort of imposed over Reagan's face at one point. It's like kind of fighting through. It's like kind of a cool visual, even though it's seventies special oh, effects. Yeah, yeah. I would say most of the effects are pretty good in this movie. Karis is the weaker link, obviously, and the demon turns its attentions onto him. Consistently fucking with him, showing that it has the upper hand. You killed your mother, you left her to die, and he's like, no! <laughs> he's like screaming. It's like, Karis, get it together! One of the coolest visuals in the entire movie is when just suddenly she breaks out of her restraints that she's like tied to the bed with, and then she just starts levitating with her eyes rolled back oh, white. I know. And there's like no explanation, well, think, no comment from the demon. Just like, look at this. <laughs> yeah, well, I think what's unclear and that kind of adds to the overall feeling is what, if any, effect is what they're doing having. There's parts where it seems like it's working. Then there's yeah, parts where it seems like nothing is happening. It's not like you just say the magic words and something happens. It's like you have to constantly like fight it with these words right, over right, and over and yeah. over. And that's when they talk about his previous exorcism taking months and it almost killing him. Oh, yeah. It's like this battle you have to wage. The devil and God are raging inside That's me. right, yeah. <laughs> Pazuzu makes an appearance. Another awesome shot. Reagan, like, on her knees on the bed and then, like, the shadow on the wall of the demon. Her arms, like, up in the air. Oh, I know. This part looks awesome. And once they get a little bit of control, Marin is like... All right, well, let's take a break. Yeah, really. <laughs> That's the thing. It is a marathon. I know he's like, they need to get started right away, but it is like, what was the full plan here? I guess it's just like, you kind of just have to ride it out and see yeah. where it takes you. I think you could look at it like the demon has like a power bar and the you're more like you do, you're down, like wearing yeah. it down and then you can maybe like go to sleep for a whole night and come back and it's not like it's fully charged necessarily. That's yeah. why you can like keep working and keep working the chip away at it. I don't know. The demon impersonates Karis's mother and he can't cope. <laughs> Marin tells him to leave, attempting to go it alone. And so Karis goes downstairs and he's sort of sitting there with his head in his hands. And when Chris asks whether or not Reagan is going to die, he's inspired to get it together and go back up there. Yeah. Only to be uninspired by the sight that he sees. At that exact moment, Kinderman arrives and rings the doorbell. When Karis returns to Reagan's bedroom, she is untied from her restraints, and Father Marin is dead, evidently from a heart attack. I will say, I think it's kind of creepy, but Reagan's reaction to this whole thing, almost surprise, at first kind of looking like sheepish, like confused, it seems She's like. She's like giggling, though. Yeah, but it almost feels like there's almost like a dawning on and then gets like more maniacal about it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I don't know. It could mean that there's still parts of Reagan there or, you know, it could have just been the way it, it came off. Yeah. Karis is unable to revive him, and so he turns on the demon, wrestling a laughing reagan to the ground and he's like beating the shit out of her and he's screaming take me take me come yep. into me you son of a bitch <laughs> take me 
come into me. God damn you! Take me! Take me! Spirit leaves Reagan's body and possesses Karis, and in a moment of self-sacrifice, Karis throws himself out the window, fatally tumbling down those same steps as Burke. Yeah, that those steps have taken two lives <laughs> a short period of time. Somehow alive long enough for Father Dyer to run up and perform the last rites. That's right. That was and convenient. you're like yeah. looking at him and he's just laying at the bottom of this long steps where he like fell out of a window and there's blood everywhere. And I'd be like, I'm pretty sure he'd be at least unconscious. Uh, I think he'd be pretty dead. Yeah. Kinderman and Chris come into the room and Kinderman's just like looking around like, what the fuck? Because. Well, why is he back here? Who knows? Is, I, I thought one of the cool s- scenes in the movie that I sort of went right past was the one time when Karis is leaving the house. And you see Kinderman like waiting on the street in a car, and he's been like surveilling. Yeah. And he looks up at Reagan's window, and Reagan has been strapped to the bed. Yet you see like that shadow. Okay. Yeah. The silhouette in the window, and you're that's like, right. "Oh, that's creepy. Like, yeah. who's that supposed to be?" <laughs> yeah. But he um, is clueless. He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know that there's oh, I know. an exorcism. He, I mean, he's showing up. Who knows what's going on with this girl at this point? We got two dead priests on site. <laughs> But as soon as he gets off of Reagan, she starts crying in her normal voice, and then he throws himself out the window with his face like kind of demonic. That's right. And then when Chris comes in, she's like crying, mommy, mommy. She's like completely normal now. And Kinderman is just like, I don't know what the fuck this is. Yeah, I know. Why did I come back here? The end result is Reagan apparently is fine with no memory of the events of the last few months or whatever Yeah, no, they're just going to go to Europe. And they're leaving. Rightfully so. And Father Dyer comes over. There's really just sort of a lot of awkwardness. By the way, it's almost interpreted, or I guess implied that, I don't think they get up and leave the next morning, right? But for me, there would be no more nights in this house after this. You know what I mean? (laughs) It seems like there'd be a lot of questions to answer that we never see them having to answer. That's true, yeah. So there's the part where Reagan looks up and sees Father Dyer's collar, his priest's collar. Even though she has no memory of this, it inspires her to like reach up and kiss him on the cheek. But the way that they shoot this, it is weird, right? Like yeah, it's it almost, almost like feels like they're teasing first. something yeah, right, yeah. else. I agree. I think she has like this look, and she looks at it, and then it's like all of a sudden she's like reaching up. And you're like, "What is she doing?" Right, right, yeah. And then they leave, and like I said, there's a different ending in the director's cut. I did read, I don't remember my reaction to the ending of the director's cut, but I did read about it's it just, being different. Yeah. I don't Instead know that you like, feel any different. Well, they give the necklace to Father Dyer. It was Father Karras' necklace, and that's how it ends in the theatrical cut. But in the director's cut, they give it to him at the house rather than out of the car, and then he gives it back yeah, for some reason. which I guess I can kind of see like the Chris angle and sort of like this tie to father Karis, but 
I don't know that you feel any different. And then he just talks to Kinderman. Yeah. Kinderman invites him to a movie because he (laughs) he had already invited Father Karras. And they sort of like replay the same joke. And that's that's it. Yeah, it's it's a wild movie. Absolutely. (laughs) It's very intense. I think there are certain movies over time that have sort of recaptured that. I would say a modern movie to me that has that same vibe of being unsettling would be like hereditary. Yeah, exactly. Some of the scenes almost feel like nods to The Exorcist, I would say, in Hereditary. Yeah, The Exorcist just works on such a visceral level that it pulls people in of all different types because even if you don't really have any religious affiliation with it, it just kind of works on its own. But then if you are like a religious person, this feels like maybe a reality or something that could happen. I know. So it scares you in that way too. It's one of those things where the victim at the center of it is a little girl and she seems like very innocent and it's not like a slasher movie where the people having sex or doing drugs get killed or something like that. It's like, she's just this little girl, she's living her life and then this bullshit happens and you're like, well, what the fuck are you supposed to do about this? (laughs) Right, exactly. Like, how do you contend with this? And I also feel like even though like a lot of it is from Father Karras' perspective, it kind of just feels like there's not really a true hero to the movie. It's more of a collection of people that are brought together through this event, this this horrible thing that's happening. And, you know, we talk about it a lot, but just the way these movies were made around this time, it was like going to war, it seems like. But the results of the movies were always great during this era. All right, so this was a big one. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, we were going to get to it at, at some, some point, point with all of these greatest Octobers. What are you doing? What? <clears throat> what? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. I think we should just do a recommendation real quick. Don't want to go too much longer with this. I'll just say, hey, check out season two of Pen15 on Hulu. It's a weird show. I don't think I recommended season one on here, but maybe I did. But now season two is on there. It's Two adult women in their 30s. I watched a little of it the other day. Playing middle schoolers. Yeah. It is very bizarre. I don't really know how to explain it, but it takes place during the time that I would have been around. I'm probably similar in age to these chicks, maybe a little older. So they're in middle school around the year 2000-ish. There's episodes where they watch wild things. There's an episode where (laughs) everyone's obsessed with wrestling and they're watching like Trish Stratus. This podcast? Yeah. Just all the stuff that I thought was cool when I was their age. Yeah. It's just a weird show. I can't really imagine a scenario where guys would be able to do this. Like, hey, let's pretend we're in middle school and like have relationships with girls that are in middle school. Because that does happen. And I don't really know how they film some of this stuff. It seems weird. Yeah. But, you know, like some kid in middle school is like grabbing their chest or something. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, what, what's right. happening right now? But uh, yeah, check that out. It's pretty funny, but it's also just yeah. kind of enjoyable. I've watched some of it. It's definitely pretty uh, insane, the level of things that go on on that show. Yeah. Did you have one? Oh, yeah. I was just, just real quick, picked it up a couple weeks ago when it was released. The Alfred Hitchcock 4K box set that came out, it, it has Rear Window, Vertigo, Psycho, and The Birds. I've only watched Psycho and The Birds so far, but pretty sweet. Looks awesome. Obviously classic director classic movies yeah i kind of wish that they would just 
release like his whole collection in 4k i don't know why everybody's like dragging their feet about it it's like the people that own 4k players and are interested in buying it will buy that stuff yeah so if you can make one thing in 4k why not make everything in 4k because those are the people that will buy it the people that have it well and i didn't own any of his movies on hard copy so just to you know get this notch on the bedpost yeah i think what we've only done rear window so far but i think we have some more in the pipeline we'll be doing more hitchcock on the show eventually sure there's a few we'll get to for sure all right so the greatest greatest october rolls on we still got all of october itself (laughs) it feels like we've been doing this forever we're not even in october that's true a lot more to come a lot more to come some big ones still this was one of the biggest ones we had planned for this extended thing but we've got other top tier horror movies i think all of the choices all nine of them are pretty strong candidates oh yeah you can follow our show on twitter at greatest pod subscribe please on apple podcast podbean tell a friend give us a rating and review interact on twitter send us a tweet let us know what you think it seems like people are really embracing the show finally after almost five years <laughs> we forced them into submission <laughs> we're at episode what 195 was that what this was finally people are listening <laughs> i don't know i think we could probably make it to episode a thousand with like 12 listeners and we would be fine yeah i don't see why not <laughs> i think the only people that we actually care about are ourselves <laughs> listening like are we entertaining ourselves Just like by everything doing else this? we do yeah <laughs> All right, that's enough for this one. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Won't you let me walk you home from school? Won't you let me meet you at the pool? Maybe Friday I Tickets for the dance And I'll take you Won't you tell your dad Get off my back
been talking. My news team has emptied their gas tanks at your feet. I dropped the smoke and every one of you goes poof. Well, you forgot one thing, Leatherman. You drop that smoke, you die too. <laughs> With the things I've done in my life, oh, I know I'm gonna burn in hell. So I sure as shit ain't afraid to burn here on Earth. Oh my goodness. That's the most badass thing I've ever heard. <laughs> 